Question for Pierre. Um, there's uh, various methods that, methods that you're using to uh, find properties off-market. If you could uh, elaborate on that. So there are actually a lot of methods that I'm using. So, um, I mean, I try to get them from all kinds of different ways. So one of the ways, one of the easier ways is actually just cooperating with other realtors. So a lot of times realtors will have deals that um, basically pocket listings that uh, they're not really sure what to do with because the house is maybe in bad condition or there's a hoarder inside or, you know, all kinds of different scenarios. Uh, so that could be their listing and I make it very clear to them that I'm very interested in deals that are not on the MLS and if they're able to give those to me I would let them um, you know even as a realtor I would let them double end uh, the deal I don't want a piece of their commission as long as they give me a good deal on you know what I consider a good deal on the house I'll take that uh, from them so basically calling a bunch of realtors um, and letting them know that they can have the commission, but you just want a good deal off of the MLS. Uh, the other way is going out there and door knocking on sellers' doors, and you know, in a way, acting like a realtor that you're basically trying to find somebody uh, trying to sell their house and basically making them an offer. And uh, lots of ways to incentivize that, which is just you know, obviously you wouldn't be charging any commission and um, making it very easy for them. Maybe you have cash, or you can do it, uh, you know, with a loan. Maybe a nice letter with a picture of the family saying that you're looking in that neighborhood for a home. Um, so you can door knock. You could also mass mail flyers, um, and also, you know, lots of creative ways of doing it as well. Sometimes, uh, you know, especially in this meeting, there's a lot of people that are wholesalers. And so a lot of times you can find deals that way. So basically, I don't mind paying a little bit for somebody else to find me that seller. And a lot of times that's kind of the low-lying fruit, which is just having somebody else do it and then giving them some of the profit and then moving ahead with a bigger profit when you flip it. Um, also on what I've been really successful with is sometimes wholesalers you know they're really scared a lot of times because on the contract they only have maybe you know to make that seller sign they only put in maybe five days or ten days contingencies so basically they only have ten days to find a buyer so a lot of times wholesalers love the idea of a realtor that has a huge pool of buyers, maybe an entire office worth of buyers. And so if you offer that to wholesalers, that if they get you a good deal, you're going to find that buyer for them and make sure that they get something for all their hard work. Uh, a lot of times wholesalers would love that and they send you constantly you know, all the deals that they have. And if it's good enough to where one of your buyers or one of the office's buyers ends up getting it, you'll get a little piece, they get a little piece, everybody gets a piece.
got a follow-up for that. So when wholesalers are bringing you deals and you're hooking them up with the buyers, how are you structuring the deal? They come and say, hey, I've got this property I want to wholesale for $750,000. You say, okay, great, I've got a buyer. Are you, are you getting a flat fee? Is there some commission? How's that working for you? Yeah, so uh, usually it's, you know, you work out uh, like a flexible policy on that because a lot of times what I want to do is successfully close it for wholesalers because wholesalers a lot of times, you know, they're really scared. They've got five, ten days to get this thing done and oftentimes or maybe after, and it's really hard for them to get the deal, so oftentimes they just want it to be done. So if the guy is at 750 on the contract and I have to lower it down to like 755 and I would only make 5000 or 760 you know I'll just make sure the deal is done but of course I'm going to try to find somebody at 800 and um, but if that's too high I'll, I'll go way down to where I make sure that the wholesaler sees that I put in the effort to just get it done for him and after you have a track record of deals coming to you and you coming back with a successful close then you know wholesalers love that uh, because it's way too much work to try to find the seller they don't have time or the brain power to kind of do both things at the same time you know it's just too hard to find the seller so they'd love a place to park all their contracts and have you find the buyer for them successfully each time This question is for Mark. Hi, Mark. Good evening. Hi. I, I just found out tonight that you got your realtor license at the beginning of the year. Actually, uh, in 2011. Oh, in 2011. Okay. All right. Well, I have a question about that because I've been counseled both ways. I am somebody who likes to do assignments and I want to do some fix and flips and I want to do some buy and hold. Um, what is, would you say are the advantages and then maybe also the disadvantages because I was a realtor about 15 years ago very successful but didn't do it for very long and they said well you better go get it again because then you're gonna you know be in where all the birds are so can you expand on that a little bit sure so I, I really don't see a downside to getting your real estate license I guess the common downside that people talk about is that you know if things go wrong you're held to a higher standard <clears throat> but in my opinion if you're doing things with integrity with the highest integrity then you really shouldn't have anything to worry about there and what the real estate license does for you is uh, first you're educated in this profession um, you understand real estate better I think uh, you understand contract law um, and you also you know, the obvious things are you have access to the MLS, uh, you have a lockbox key. Uh, a lot of people ask about off-market deals, but a lot of my more recent deals have actually been on the MLS and just looking at properties creatively, finding properties that uh, you can fix uh, perhaps uh, poor layouts, um, add to. Uh, most of my additions have been within the existing footprint. So the point being, I'm one of the benefits that I have when I approach real estate agents 
to work with me is I tell them, look, I'm a licensed real estate broker. You'll represent me on the buy side when I buy, and you'll also represent me when I list it. But I'll make your job easy. I'm very competent at analyzing the property because I have full MLS access. And quite frankly, you don't even need to go out to the properties. If you find me a great property, I can uh, have my own access to it as well. So, um, again, I don't see any downside as long as you're doing uh, high-integrity business. Can I just add on one thing? So, uh, one thing just to take a counter to that, and I, I don't disagree with what Mark said, but the downside that I see or the advantage that I see to not being licensed is when I go to the agent's if Mark and I go talk to an agent and he tells the agent that, he doesn't know Mark personally. He doesn't know Mark, hasn't done business with Mark. And then I go meet with them and I say, I'm not licensed at all, but I have the same things of closing fast, making quick decisions, making your life easy. I feel like that gives me an advantage over those who are licensed. So just another perspective, that would be one potential downside to being licensed is I think agents know that there's no chance of me uh, you know, listing it myself because I'm not licensed with Mark or with Pierre. They're taking them at their word, which, depending on how well they know them, that may or may not be enough. I've got a lot of references. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a way, I do agree with uh, John on that. So I do feel I'm a little bit of a disadvantage because I am a realtor. And so when I talk to other realtors, there is that fear in the back of their minds that I am going to try to use the property that they send me to list it behind their backs or you know something along those lines so a lot of times if you're not a realtor I really feel that there is actually a little bit of an advantage Along those lines, whoops. Uh, along those lines, so you, a realtor brings you a property. You say, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you in on a commission because you found that property, and I'm gonna let you list the house." Do you put that in writing to just reassure them that, "Hey, I'm gonna take care of you through the whole process," or do you not put yourself on the line in that regard? I haven't done that because they haven't asked me to do that. But if they did, I'd be happy to do it. I think that's the bottom line. And you know, anybody can go look at, you know any and all the houses that I've purchased and they'll see that I've never listed any of those properties. Actually, the only properties I've listed are for family and friends who, you know, asked me to list their house and that's not why I got my real estate license. I don't have any um, goals or intentions to go out and list properties uh, as a retail agent. So I think, you know, I can... Anybody that has a concern there, I can certainly answer to that very effectively. Yeah, I, I agree with, with uh, Mark. The, the only time I've had someone say, I'd like to put it in writing, they, they wrote up a listing agreement before I had even closed on the upfront purchase, so I don't even know that that would be enforceable, but it just made them feel good to have something on paper. But other than that one time, I've never had anyone. So I've never really had anyone either, uh, but I've always sensed that they were a little apprehensive uh, but obviously you know um, if they gave me that first chance I would prove myself that you know I had no intention of listing or you know anything like that it was just purely 
I'm very grateful to them that they gave me that deal. And then I move you know, forward with everything else. And that sets a precedent to where they know that they can trust me and continue giving me those deals. But if I was ever asked to put it in writing, I would jump at the chance to put it in writing because uh, you know, the intention was always to you know, show myself as a person that they can trust. So. Hi, my question's for Pierre. Um, you mentioned that you uh, work with wholesalers and that the wholesalers um, like to work with realtors because um, they have a lot of buyers. How do they generally work the um, profit for the realtor in that sense? So, so with the assignment fee, they usually, um, you know, there depends on how many people are involved. So with wholesalers, Sometimes it gets a little complicated because they ended up getting the deal through somebody else that found it for them, and then there's a third player in there, and so on. So, you know, I tend to be very easy about, you know, what the split is going to be, and then you end up, you know, splitting it with them. Uh, but I like to kind of figure out what the percentages are going to be at the beginning, just so, know, so I know what I'm working with. And as long as I know everything up front, then I know how to proceed. Um, but it's, you know, wholesaling is just a crazy kind of thing to do. And a lot of times people tend to be a little bit on the ADD side uh, and just constantly looking, you know, at all kinds of different deals. Uh, they got all kinds of people that they're talking to and they can like multitask a hundred things at once. So if you can just kind of make their life just a little bit calmer uh, and when they have something in their hand like a sale and make sure that you match it up with a buyer uh, they're usually very grateful yeah I think the key is everybody's here because you guys all realize the value of networking and relationships and all that and you know it's no different with the wholesaler in fact as you know Pierre is suggesting you know they they are in contract <clears throat> they have a deadline that they have to meet and it's it's facing them and so the the buyer has to come in they have to have time to do their inspections and they have to commit and and, and get the deal done or else the wholesalers you know lost out so the bottom line is if you can prove yourself as Pierre just said with the wholesaler you know you just need to do it once really and, you know, I have wholesalers that have brought me multiple deals because the first deal, I made it really simple for them. And I was successful and I paid them. I didn't question actually what they were asking me because for, for the deal because um, the numbers made sense. Obviously, I wouldn't have done it if they didn't. But uh, it's all relationship-based. So once you prove yourself that you're a closer, that you can be decisive, um, and get the deal done uh, and, and reduce their stress level, then... Uh, you're going to have a really good uh, resource uh, for finding deals out there because, you know, a lot of people getting into this business say it's hard to, if not impossible in this market to find deals, but people that have a track record that are doing deals, they those deals come to them because the wholesalers, you're on their short list. As John always says, you know, you the goal is to move up the, the, their list so that you're the first or second phone call that they make 
not the sixth or seventh, because you'll never get that deal in this market. So that's really the key. People, a lot of people come to these meetups, they exchange business cards, right? And, you know, they, they exchange pleasantries, and then they never follow up, or they might follow up once. But the key is to be persistent, and, um, and then, you know, when a deal comes along, you want to be at the right place at the right time, because, you know, if you haven't called that wholesaler that you met, you know, six months ago, if you haven't talked to him, I guarantee you he's given, if he's a good wholesaler, he's given away multiple deals uh, since you met him. And unless you're checking in with him, finding a reason to check in with him every couple weeks or so, couple, three weeks, being diligent and persistent and organized, uh, you're just going to miss out on opportunities. Yeah, I think the main thing that, that Mark said is uh, being at the top of that list. And one question is, well, how do you how do you move up that list? And I think one of the biggest things, and Mark alluded to that, but I'll be real specific, is don't question when they give you a price. The deal either works for you or it doesn't work for you at that price. Or if anything, you go back to them one time with a number. Uh, if you get a reputation of always trying to take money out of their pocket, you're moving yourself down the list. So it really doesn't matter what they're asking for. I've paid wholesalers six-digit wholesale fee before. It really doesn't matter, though, because it matters how much profit they leave in the deal for me. So if you want to be one of the first people that they call, you need to analyze the deal, and it works or it doesn't work, and you move on. I think that's one of the most important things. The other thing that Mark alluded to this and Pierre did also is making quick decisions. So if I get a call from a wholesaler and it's a good deal, I'm in my car and I'm there within an hour or two hours. And I make a decision within the day. And it rarely may, will, may go into the next day. And that's the reason that I get a lot of the deals is based off of speed. And they feel very comfortable that somebody that they're working with can make a quick decision and isn't uh, going out of their way to take money out of their pocket. And I even tell them, I don't, I don't care what, I don't even ask them what they have the, pro the property and contract for because it's really irrelevant to me. All that matters is what they're offering it to me and what, what the numbers say. That, I'll just add to that. So, you know, speed is really the key here. So if you haven't done a deal yet, get out there and figure out a way to do your first deal because the way deals are happening today, people are buying them. I bought deals just recently that look like a train wreck, the houses, but I bought them with no contingencies just because I can look, I've done enough of these that I can look at them and be confident in the numbers and what it's going to cost to fix that project uh, such that you can make a very fast decision. So, um, but it's, it's really, key. the experience is really key. You don't want to go do that on your first deal. You've never done a deal. You've never, you know, gone through the process. Uh, if you do, that's also could be a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And, it, and if you do that until you have the skill to analyze it yourself, bring your contractor or bring a contractor with you and get that comfort level and walk through it with them and ask them, what do you look for? What are the, you know, the structural and, and large ticket items that I should be looking for so that you can avoid making a big mistake. And uh, like I mentioned, I, I kind of do a little bit different, which is, um, you know, I filter through a lot of wholesalers. So wholesalers come to me with the deals. So for what I do is provide the buyers. So the buyers on those deals, um, you know, I might mention it to... 30, 40 buyers. 39 of them are going to say no, and one of them is going to say yes. And then about a month or two later, when that buyer that bought the property sold it and made 
you know, 200, 250,000, uh, what I do is go back to those 39 and I showed them what they passed up. And so basically I'm training my buyers to, you know, analyze a little bit better for the next one. Because a lot of times for buyers in this market, it's so strong that, you know, they shouldn't be as nervous, but it's, you know, a healthy nervousness, which I understand, but I'm trying to kind of educate the buyers that I have to where on the next deal, maybe they wouldn't pass it up because look what happened on that last one. And so um, a lot of my buyers too will maybe, you know, maybe it's their first time trying to look at a wholesale deal or, you know, whatever the problem was the previous time. So they'll know the next time to maybe listen to me a little bit better or not be afraid of, you know, the assignment fee. What is an assignment fee? Why isn't it on this? Why isn't it on there? So they're a little bit more open-minded as to how crazy a wholesale deal tends to be and to just go with the, go with the flow on it. I'm uh, Peter. I'm a local rehabber. Uh, the, the challenge you know, may not be the only one in the room is getting consistent deal flow for me. If you were uh, dropped into a new market with no real resources, money, and etc., you just had your time and your experience, what were the first few things you'd do to get up and running quickly? So if you had no real resources, what I would do is you know, going out there and trying to find a deal. And you could do it just through door knocking. Um, but doing it in a smart way, you know, bring your letters with you, uh, maybe a family picture, uh, letting them know that you have cash to close fast. Um, and it doesn't have to be your cash because you mentioned you had no cash. But, but I mean, uh, you know, that you have cash, you have access to cash, uh, which everybody sort of does with the hard hard money deals and everything um, and so you would try to make it as convincing as possible and once they have that contract signed by you since you're not able to close on it yourself uh, you know you could wholesale it out to somebody make some decent money doing that on your first you know four or five six deals and if you like it enough, you might just continue doing it. Some people really like wholesaling and they just keep doing it. Um, but then you start getting some capital and you might start partnering with people on deals. And then eventually you start doing the deals by yourself. So I'm sorry, did you say you, you got dropped in a new market and you had no money? Okay. Uh, well, I think everybody's doing it right here. I mean, I would attend the RIAs. I'd go to the places where other um, investors are hanging out, and I would uh, look to find you know that person or those people that are looking for deals, which is pretty much everybody in a room like this. And I'd you know if I didn't have any money, the other resource I have hopefully is some time and knowledge to, to how to find the deals. So. Again, it's all relationship-based. Um, 
I mean, there's two ways to do this, right? If you have money, it's kind of like Google. Uh, and if you're going to advertise, there's organic advertising that doesn't cost money but costs time to go out and figure out how to, you know, get the move up on to page one, or you pay uh, money to, you know, do ads. So it's kind of the same way here. You can spend a lot of money on direct mail. I'm guessing in this market, you probably have to spend north of, you know, three, four grand a month to really get much deal flow uh, with direct marketing or any internet advertising, that's a really costly thing to do. So if you don't have those resources, then it really does come down to meeting the right people that can find you the deals. And it just comes to you know developing relationships here. I've done everything from Googling you know REO agents and short sales specialists back in the day when those things actually existed and then going immediately. In fact, my first deal that I ever did here in the Bay Area was uh, an agent that I uh, found on Google just by doing exactly that. I went and sat in his office. He was a Keller Williams agent in Cupertino. And I spent about 45 minutes talking to this guy, uh, telling him what I was trying to find, and he was looking at me and questioning me like I was completely insane. And then at the end of the conversation, I was getting up to leave, thinking it was a total waste of time. And he's like, you know what? I think I might have a deal for you. I, I might have something for you. And he took me out to this house, and it was like the perfect fit. I mean, I'm sure it was just total dumb luck, but that came about from picking up the phone, having a list, being organized, calling these guys. Eight out of ten of them never called me back. I got this one guy on the line. So it's really just, you know, putting yourself out there, and that's how I found my first deal. And, you know, once you get your first deal done, then it gets a lot easier. Right, give yourself a chance to get lucky, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think same thing. Um, I, I believe the relationship building is, is a big deal. And the thing I come across most when I'm talking to folks that don't have the experience and they, they don't have the money is, okay, well, I talked to the agent. How do I get their attention? Um, and until you have a record, you have to be talking about what you are going to do, one, or you come to meetings like this, you align yourself with partners that or potential partners, and that can be partners meaning that you know Mark's going to buy a deal from me, or it could be that if I bring Mark a deal, that we're going to partner on a deal. And whether I've done 30 deals or no deals, if there's a good deal and you bring it to Mark or Pierre, they're probably going to either buy it from you or they're going to partner with you in some way, or they'll be open to it. And so in doing that, you're leveraging your partner's experience. So you find a good deal. You've got a list of five or ten people who you know are going to be able to perform. Call up Mark or Pierre or myself and say, hey, I've got this deal. I'm going to be meeting this agent. Here's the address. Here's the numbers on it. Do you want to go with me to the meeting? Then you're leveraging you know, people's experience that have that track record until you built your own, uh, and it gives you that credibility. So that's, that's another way that uh, you can do it until you've got your own record to stand on. Um, oh, sorry, let me add something real quick. So it's kind of interesting uh, that I'm telling you which realtors to target, but anyways. Um, so what I found the most success with are actually either beginning realtors or uh, superstar realtors. Hung yeah, hungry realtors that are just beginning or superstar realtors that are too busy and they're not sure how to kind of get rid of all the stuff that they're getting. 
So um, the really experienced realtors, and you can easily find a list of them by the real estate magazines that come out, all the people with the big ads, you know, all kinds of stuff that tell you who the successful realtors are. And calling those successful realtors, because most likely they have, you know, 20 different deals and they'd love to siphon through them much faster. And if you're a cash buyer, you know, and they don't have to list it on the MLS, they just, you know, give it to you and you're moving forward, makes it very easy for them. And then the beginning realtors, that one's a little bit tougher because most likely they're not going to have a deal. But the beginning realtors, if they ever get a deal, they're really excited and motivated and they're not sure what to do because they have a deal. So then, you know, oh, that guy talked to me. He's the only one that ever talked to me. Uh, I'll go ahead and call him because nobody else bothers with me. It's kind of funny that uh, my last deal that I did was actually from my office with a starting uh, realtor, never done a transaction in his life. And basically he had a... Um, uh, his girlfriend's relative or some, you know, some distant relationship that ended up uh, giving him a listing. And uh, he was able to ask me some questions about it and ask a couple of other people in the office. And we ended up doing that deal. And, you know, after fixing up the house a little bit, maybe just putting thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 into it, uh, you know, we stand to make close to 400000 on the property uh, in Sunnyvale, about five minutes from downtown Los Altos. Okay, so my question is, if I go out and get a property under contract tomorrow, okay, so if I go out and get a property under contract tomorrow, okay, what is a sensible amount of days for the seller and for me to find the buyer and close the deal? You know, I think it really depends on the buyer, right? Some buyers, you know, if they want the flexibility to move, you know, in 45 days or something. But, you know, typically we're looking for the person that has to move right away, cash buyer is, you know, really attractive because they know they can close quick. But really, that, you know, that's all part of the negotiation with the, with the seller, excuse me, um, as to what they want. So it's all about the seller. You know, what, how can you satisfy them? If you have an off-market deal, what's it going to take to get it done? And then that's where the network is critical in your buyer's list. And, you know, I, yeah, I mean, John or I, or I'm sure Pierre, if we get a phone call and it's, it's, it looks like a great deal, you know, in front of the computer, you know, we're going to be out there that afternoon taking a look at it. And, uh, you know, with hard money and all, you can close deals quicker than the es quicker than the deals can go through escrow, right? So, I mean, the quickest I've ever closed a deal, I don't know about you guys, but uh, is maybe like 10-ish days, 10 or 11 days, and that was pushing it through as fast and hard as I could. Money wasn't holding it up. That was just escrow. Um, but as a wholesaler, I guess the bottom line is you try to get as much time as you you can, right? Okay. So you start with the maximum amount of time. If you know it looks like that's not going to do it, find out what their number is. You know, is it 21 days? Is it 15 days? What is it? And then you need to just go to work and um, and get the deal done. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, if it's a competitive listing on market, you're probably looking at two week close and one week max on your contingencies. Oftentimes, you know, for me to have an advantage, I'm going four or five days or no contingencies at all. So, uh, and the better terms you have, the lower price you might be able to get it in contract for. You know, the worst terms that you have, you're going to have to pay a premium for having terms that are worse than your competition. So, but like Mark said, if it's, especially if it's an off-market deal and you're dealing directly with a seller, it's going to be all about what their specific, uh, you know, what they're specifically what looking for. Are. Yeah, what they need to. Yeah, definitely listen to your seller and the people that you're dealing with because everybody has a little bit of a story, you know, behind it. So the guy in Sunnyvale that I just had to deal with, so um, he actually had a technology company that he sold and I think made over you know, $100 million or whatever it was, some large amount. And basically for tax purposes, he had to show that he wasn't living in California and uh, that he was living in, uh, I think, Nevada is where he had to show. And so, and so he needed to get rid of this house as soon as possible. So he was looking, he didn't have time for MLS or anything else. He just wanted somebody to come in, buy it cash. He was selling under market. We even had him sign a, you know, the broker that I have is, was a little bit scared about it because it was, you know, pretty low. So he had him even sign a letter saying that he understands he's selling this low. Uh, but he didn't care. He was going to stand to, you know, make millions by not being in California and moving to Nevada. He just wanted, he wanted out as fast as possible. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> so what's the percentage that you're looking at that will make you move really fast in terms of ARV less, 20%, 25%, that will make you move really fast? Uh, and that's the, the rehab cost as well. I mean, it, it, it depends on the market. You know, down here in the South Bay or in the peninsula, um, the market's so strong and competitive. I think, you know, typically a, a lower margin's used. I personally haven't done a deal down here for quite some time just because the margins don't look as good as they do in Oakland and some of the deals I'm finding in the Berkeley market. So, um, you know, in those markets, I'm doing 75% of our less my construction budget, somewhere close to that. Uh, unfortunately, these deals today seem to be taking longer and construction budgets are, um, the construction uh, ends up being pretty large just because, you know, the cosmetic fix and flips today are, you know, far and few between. So typically we're trying to do more and um, so, what actually ends up saving us there, and so what still makes us a successful business is that the market keeps going up, right? So even if you end up holding it a little bit longer than you expected, or the construction ends up going a little bit more just because of how much uh, work you're taking on on these projects, you're still generally making good profits because the mar market's still going up. But for me, it's 75% of R of less construction, somewhere in there. So I, I look at things a little bit differently. Um, I'm looking more at the annualized return, which allows me to analyze a three-month project against a six-month project, against a nine-month project, against a 12-month project. And so annualized returns, I'm looking somewhere between 20 and 40% is generally where it would land. Um, and that way, again, 
regardless of how long the deal is, you know, I can adjust for that in how I'm evaluating. And I can also evaluate deals that are not very similar that way. And I have a spreadsheet that I created in the corporate world. I was in finance, so that's one thing I was able to bring to this. But it's no different than a lot of the spreadsheets that you'll find on whether you go through one of the fortune builders or any of the gurus type classes. They all have different files, and it's very much along those same lines. But annualized return is what I look at. So for me, I'm a little different also, <laughs> which is good, uh, because it shows you there's no you know, definite way to kind of do it, like a formula, and you just kind of follow that. If it doesn't work, it doesn't, you know, do it. So sometimes with people listening to, you know, seminars and gurus and, and things, they have this formula that they go through. And a lot of times it just doesn't work out. So for me, I kind of analyze the deal, and I don't really do much that is six, nine, and 12 months out. Usually my deals are just, I grab the house, fix it up a little bit, and then flip it. So most of my deals are about two to three months. So if I can make, if I can net uh, 50,000, I'll do the deal. And uh, part of my reasoning behind that too is I want to be the person where uh, you know these deals are coming to. So if other people are waiting for a hundred, two hundred, five hundred thousand, they're going to say no a bunch of times. I want to be the guy that says yes to the deal that you bring me. So as long as I can make fifty thousand, I'll do the deal. I want to be the yes guy to whoever is bringing me the deal, and I don't mind making small profit as long as I can kind of keep them going and keep the relationship going because at some point that same person is going to give me a bigger deal. Uh, with wholesaling also, you know, people tend to struggle and get, um, you know, 10, 20,000 out of it and they struggle again and they make another 10 and it almost seems like they're working a little bit too hard for the amount of money that they're making. But what wholesalers really need to understand is they're honing their craft and that eventually they'll figure out, you know, almost like golf, where if you turn a little bit, you curl your toe a little bit, the ball goes a different way. There's just little bit of, <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, there's little, there's little nuances that you start to kind of understand and then you start being a better and better wholesaler, and then instead of 10, 20,000, you start making 50, 100,000. And, uh, you know, a, a wholesaler that I know that, you know, both of I did his first deal, I helped them kind of understand what it is, when both of us didn't really know what it was even called. Uh, we both kind of, you know, I helped them understand how we could kind of make it work, what we were doing, when we didn't even know what wholesaling was. Um, and, and basically through that, after you know, five, ten years of doing it, he started really getting big ticket items to where you know, he ended up wholesaling a house in Palo Alto for 500000 wholesale. And that's uh, next month's guest, Jason Boozy. I, I just want to add to what I said. So, you know, this 75% of R of less construction, I mean, that's really just a starting point for me because if you're networking correctly and all, you're probably seeing a lot of deals. So 
realistically, if I see any deal that's somewhere between 75 to 80 um, uh, of our less construction, you know, I'm going to take a little bit closer look at it. Uh, like John said, you know, I think most people either have a spreadsheet or you can ask us for it too, and you can just plug the numbers in. So I'm sure just like your spreadsheet, you know, mine has a holding period and, you know, it automatically calculates out, you know, your holding costs and all that. So, you know, at the bottom of that spreadsheet, it'll say, you know, there's, you know, $35,000 in profit or 60 or whatever it is. Um, and I'm looking at that number, I'm looking at the market, and I'm looking at, you know, how much effort it's going to take to do the deal. And, you know, it's a subjective decision at that point. So, but the, the formula is just kind of a fast way to, you know, take a look at something and determine if you're going to take a closer look at it or just move on. <coughs> I finally have the mic, and I'm, I'm going to have 10 questions. No, just kidding. So um, my question is for beginning, uh, beginning flippers. Um, uh, where do you find the uh, uh, wholesalers, and how do you quickly identify those that are uh, professional versus those that don't really have a deal? Um, that is a great question. That's one question. And then the second question is, uh, as a beginner uh, flipper, um, how do you quickly meet that deadline that wholesaler is asking for to complete the deal? In the meantime, you have to line up the financing, the you know, work with different parties to complete the transaction. What are the step-by-step um, like, you know, instructions that you can quickly give us? Yeah, those are two good questions. So, um, you know, you're in a meeting like this, and there's probably wholesalers in this room. In fact, I know there are. So, um, you know, you meet them uh, coming to places like this, really, and letting people know what you're doing, what you're looking for. Um, I think that's probably the best way. There's a lot of meetups like this. Uh, if you just, you know, go to meetup.com, there's all kinds of uh, meetups like this. So it's really investing the time and again I hate to sound like a broken record but investing in the relationships and you'll meet all kinds of people that are uh, dedicated just to wholesaling or you know people like you know John here who has what 10 deals going on so I mean he is Superman but he can totally handle so many deals so at some point he's going to wholesale deals and you know he's looking at his cash flow too as uh, all of us are so you know for taking too much on or it's a cash flow situation, then you know we all have a buyer's list that will wholesale. So again, getting relationships with us is, is uh, or you know, with anybody in this room that's doing this is, is, of course, goes without saying that it's important. As far as you know, how much time you need and putting it all together, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts for sure, which is why you know I would suggest for a lot of beginners to go out and partner with somebody that's done it before, uh, that has the ability to bring in the money uh, in short notice, uh, having relationships with a contractor. So you really need to get all your ducks lined up in a row and that's really building that team. And um, so you can, you know, try to do it on your own or you can partner. I mean, those are really your two options. And I think it really depends on how much time resources you have. If you have a day job, that's really challenging, of course. Yeah, just some other things to find wholesalers would be 
Um, a lot of people post ads on Craigslist that they buy houses. You see bandit signs, they call them, the signs out there that say quick cash, buy houses. Don't call those saying that you have something to sell. Call those saying, I'm a, I'm a buyer, because a lot of those people are getting deals. And if they're getting deals, rather than you spending the time and money to go do all that marketing that they're doing, leverage the time that they're spending to do it. So let them go do all the marketing and then sell you a deal and you're obviously going to pay a markup for it. But for me, I'd rather leverage my time paying a markup and letting, you know, 50 or 100 other people go do all the marketing and spend all the money and time on that. And then I'll pay them a premium as long as there's enough money left in the deal for me. Uh, so those would be a couple other ideas. Uh, what was the, the second question was on the, oh, how much time for trying to get the deal done. Yeah, the biggest thing is just lining all those things up in advance. If you're waiting until you have a deal to go line up all those things you're talking about, you're going to be out of luck. So you need to go find the people that you're going to be able to sell the deal to. You need to go talk to the lenders that you're going to be using. You need to go talk to contractors that you're going to have at the ready to come out and look at a deal if you need to or provide an estimate because some people are going to be looking for estimates on, on those. You need to have all those ducks lined up before you get a deal. If you wait until you have it, you're probably going to be out of luck. Yes, they will talk to you. They'll talk to you about terms. They'll have you, uh, they can give you the documentation, like almost all of them. You're sitting next to one. They have loan, they have loan applications. They, they have a standard loan application that they'll have you fill out. Uh, so you at least have an idea beforehand. Uh, and it's going to make it much easier for you. And it's also going to make the lender feel a lot more comfortable that you're somebody that has things lined up and that you're not coming to them with a fire drill. They're going to be much more interested in funding a deal where there's sufficient time, where you've taken the time to, to have that lined up up front versus coming to them and saying, I have to close in five days. Uh, you know, they're, they're probably, especially if you don't have a lot of experience, they're going to say, you know what, it's not going to be a good fit. Find someone else. Thank you for... Hi, uh, Mark, just a quick follow-up on something you said. Um, you said that typically 75% plus construction, but you also said that uh, here in the San Jose area it's going to be a little higher than. Were you saying that uh, here 80% is probably more reasonable or more likely? I'm probably the wrong person to ask. John's done more deals down here in the South Bay at least recently. But, uh, you know, the higher... So, so if you recall what I was saying, you know, I... If it looks like it's a deal that might work, I plug it into the spreadsheet, right? And it's going to kick out a number at the bottom that hopefully if everything's been input correctly or accurately, you know, I'm going to have a number. The thing is down in the South Bay, more so than in Oakland, the price points are higher. So I may only be at 78% or 81% or something, and if I can still uh, do a deal where I can make, you know, 60, 70, 80 grand or more um, and not take on too much risk, then it might still make sense to do it. So, you know, you, again, that's just kind of a formula to, to look at a deal quickly and make see if I want to go further with it. But at the end of the day, you know, you're looking at, you know, is it a, pro, is it a deal? Is the risk worth, worth the reward ultimately? Actually, before... Before the next question, I wanted to uh, go back to her uh, thing. I didn't get to talk on that. So I have actually the, the gold mine of wholesalers, of where you're able to find wholesalers. Uh, so basically, if, if you look online, there are people that have started to teach how to become a wholesaler. 
and they have free initial uh, seminar where they try to sell you books on how to learn how to become a wholesaler. Don't pay the money on that. Go to the free seminar. The room is absolutely packed with people that are wholesalers or are trying to become wholesalers. Talk to everybody, you know, get a little piece of paper, say that you want to start a club to, you know, for the seminar's experience, you know, how much did the seminar really help us out with becoming wholesalers, and maybe just send out um, a sign-up sheet that people can kind of meet every month or whatever, but basically you have a list of a hundred names with phone numbers, all of them wholesalers that you can take back and, you know, call and get wholesalers. The other thing you were talking about, um, you know, with financing, getting everything in place. So a lot of it is is also, you know, just going out there and getting things done. So another seminar to go to is uh, Investors Business Daily, which is a stock market, you know, newspaper. So those people tend to have money, and they're there trying to learn how to kind of invest it or whatever. And so. Uh, with the money that they have, a lot of those people would love for you to offer them seven, eight percent on their money uh, to be in first position on a purchase of a product. So it's a really good way to find uh, cheap money and have you know your financing in place already. Now you just need a deal and you've got your financing. I would just add to that that you know you can go to use these different strategies to find wholesalers but none of that's really going to matter unless you are consistent and I can't overemphasize consistent in your follow-up regular follow-up because so many people come to these meetings as I said previously and they don't follow up you have to have you have to be organized in your follow-up or else you'll be long forgotten so I can't overemphasize that and if you're looking for buyers for your deal, also go to the uh, to the auction at the steps of City Hall. Those people have cash because you can't buy a house at the steps of City Hall without having the cashier's check for it. When I first did my buyers list, I went to the auction.com uh, auction at um, the Santa Clara Convention Center. And it was a room full of like 50 guys, and it's exactly what Pierre just said. All these guys had, I was probably the only one there that didn't have a cashier's check falling out of my pocket. And, you know, you sit there, how many people have been to an auction before? Yeah, so a lot of it's just a lot of sitting around while these guys wait for the bank to either postpone it, cancel it. You know, the, the owner came in at the last minute, so you're sitting around, so... When I went there, I was like running around for like two hours, just going, you know, I'm finding deals, and you know, can I get your name and number? As soon as I find a great deal, this is my criteria. You know, I, I want to, you know, give it to you. And there wasn't one person in this room. I got like 30 or 40 uh, names and phone numbers and and email addresses because there wasn't one person in that room that wasn't looking for a deal. I want to go back to the uh, targeting the realtor um, audience, and my question is, with so many uh, people in their network um, actually wanting these off-market deals, what do you communicate in your message um, to entice them to basically 
you know, work with you? Like, what other things other than double-ending the deal are you doing to, get, to keep yourself, like, top of mind with these realtors? That's a good question. So, I mean, I think money motivates everybody. So, you know, but they also want to work with people that are easy to do business with and they do what they say they're going to do and they do it in a time frame that's going to allow the realtor to be successful, right? So every realtor is working in a hyper-competitive market here. So they need and have to work with somebody that uh, can perform. Um, so, yeah, I would just say, um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I think the by far the biggest hugest thing is to call the realtor. Uh, so I'm a realtor. I've never been once called by another realtor telling me that you know he wants to do this and that. So it's always been about my deals and about my listings and you know regular realtor stuff. So I don't think it happens as much as you think. And most realtors would love to get a call like that because you know they would love to double end a deal and you know if somebody says that they understand that they want to double end because most buyers don't really understand that when the realtor has the listing and they are being used you know for also the buying side that the realtor gets both commissions so most of the public don't even understand that they're doing a big service you know, to the realtor if they allow them to double-end it. Uh, the realtor has to be a little bit careful about double-ending, but at the same time, uh, you know, most realtors would love uh, working with somebody that understands that that's, you know, what they'd love to happen with that deal that they found. I don't know if you guys know Joe Metz and Dean Higa. They put on a meetup uh, for Fix and Flippers here, too. One of the things that they do that I haven't done, but I think it's really good, is they have a spreadsheet that they show uh, what every one of their realtors uh, make on various deals. And it's pretty impressive, you know, the commissions that can be made when you double and triple uh, the commissions. And I always tell realtors that, you know, I the best I've done is had, have had realtors triple in the commissions, and I'd love to see somebody make it on all four sides. So I don't have that. I've never done that before, but I make it very clear to them that, you know, I want to see them make, you know, as much money in the transaction as possible because I understand that, you know, if they're successful, the more successful they are in that respect, you know, the more motivated they're going to be to uh, work with me in the future. Yeah, so I'd say everything everything that both of them said. Uh, the, the couple things that I would add though, and again this comes back to when you're able to do that, is your actual track record. Because part of it is what you say, but they also talk to a lot of people that say a lot of good things and then don't perform. Uh, so it, it's about how you can prove that you can perform. I mean obviously now at this point in time I'll tell you the most valuable piece of information that I have is this. This is my credibility packet. This is the deals I've done. This is my strategy. This is my before and after pictures. That speaks a lot louder than any words that anyone can, can give. Um, until you have that, as I mentioned earlier, leverage other people that have this in some way. Build a relationship with them. Get them comfortable with them using your experience and, and talking about you as a partner in some form. Again, the agents don't know whether that's a partner 
in that you're going to sell them the deal or partner in that you're going to actually partner on the deal. doesn't really matter. Um, so that, I think that's a key thing. The other thing that I do to incent the agents is that I do a tiered commission structure, which is if they give me an after repair value of what the property is going to be worth afterwards, it sells for more than that, I will increase their commission above standard commission. At the same time, to make sure that they don't give me uh, you know, a, a number that's too high or too low, if it goes below what they said, then they'll get a lower commission. If they're a good agent, they're going to believe in themselves and bet on themselves, and those are the agents that I want to work with, and they're going to be the ones that are going to believe that they're going to be able to sell it for more than what the comps say. Um, and it's also a way to keep them balanced on what they're giving you as after repair values because their commission is going to be tied to that at the end of the day. And if they're a little more conservative and you can still get the numbers to work on a deal up front, all the better for you. And I'm more than happy to share. I love sharing uh, overachievement with all of my partners, whether those are lenders, contractors, lend, uh, you know, agents, whatever. I'll just add to that. So it's kind of like if you're a salesperson, uh, anybody that uh, is a salesperson in here, they know that it's far easier to sell additional products to your existing customers, get repeat customers, and go out and find a new customer. So it's, it's kind of the same way with agents and wholesalers and anybody else that you have a relationship with, right? So you really want to do everything possible to uh, make that relationship as strong as possible. and. You know, I, I'll give John credit. You know, he really uh, impressed upon me how important it is to incentivize uh, the agents and the wholesalers, and I've taken that to heart. I do it, I think, a little less, in, uh, a little less formally than John. Typically, you know, I won't tell them I'm going to incentivize them, but when they bring me a great deal and we're all really successful on the back end, I'll give them an extra bonus that was unexpected and I can tell you one of the reasons why I've been really successful in the East Bay is because I've done that with all my uh, resources finding the opportunities up there. I've done that and they continue to bring me more deals. Hi. Um, I have a question. So. Um, when you started with the real estate, do you have any mentor? If if you have a mentor, how did you find a mentor? And then the question, the next question is, um, you are, all the deals you have, what's the best deal? Do you have any bad deal? If it's bad, and uh, is it okay to share? And <laughs> and another thing is in the in terms of location, people talk, keep talking about location, location, location. So what's the main ingredient of finding a location for the deal? That's a lot of questions. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> uh, so the first question was, uh, what mentors did we have to get into this business or teachers? And um, so for me, I had a friend who was doing some investing out in the Central Valley. Um, you know, other than fixing up my own primary residences, I really didn't know anything about this at all. So uh, he took me out to Fresno and he showed me where he was buying properties and how much he was paying for them and how much uh, he was getting in rent once he fixed them up. And I did the simple math and the returns looked great and I was really ambitious and, and all that motivated. So I went and did that and you know, kind of cut my teeth there. But after I was running out of money, I was trying to figure out what my next move was. I came back 
well, I'm in, I'm from the Bay Area, and uh, I heard an ad on the radio for Fortune Builders, um, and so I went to one of their you know quote unquote free seminars or low cost seminars, and of course there was the big pitch to get you into their coaching program. And um, it was pretty, you know, for the average person, it was pretty pricey. And I and I really agonized over whether I should, you know, write the, or give them my credit card or not. But I was really motivated and inspired to do this, so I, I ended up doing that. And it was money well worth it. Um, you know, a lot of people that go into these coaching programs, you know, I don't know what the statistics statistics are, but I would guess, you know, maybe eight out of ten people probably don't succeed because they don't have the persistence or the um, or the determination uh, to, to, to follow it through. So uh, for me, it worked, I, you know, but it doesn't work for everybody. In fact, it probably works for less people than it actually works for. But there's plenty of coaching programs out there, but quite frankly, um, what I think you'll find when you go to meetups like this is people who have done this and are successful. Um, I know I hear John say this all the time and I feel the same way. Uh, you love to give back, you love to share your knowledge. So you don't have to write a check for 15, 20, 30, 40 grand. Uh, there's people sitting right around you that can help mentor you and, and, and help answer a lot of questions for you. Um, there's one great resource that I always like to point out. It's a website called Bigger Pockets. Um, that is a phenomenal website. You can go on there and you can ask any question and you can get experts, uh, probably you know, 10, 12 answers in an hour on just about any topic real estate related. And there's a lot of really bright people on there. It's a, it's a really good resource. Uh, so there's no shortage at all in terms of mentoring, none. There's podcasts, there's all kinds of real estate podcasts out there. Um, but again, just look around you and there's plenty of people that are very generous with their time. I mean, we enjoy it so much. I went to dinner with John and his wife a couple uh, a while ago, uh, and his wife was like, yeah, you know, John was always kind of quiet, and then he got into this real estate thing, and I can't shut him up. All he does is talk about it. <laughs> so, I mean, once you get into it and you really love it and you get a passion for it, we're all really uh, excited to help others out. But uh, a lot of people say that they want to do it, and you know, a lot of people don't really follow through. But I think we have a sense of you know people that are really motivated, and you know, then we'll you know, I think be more excited about spending more time with uh, those individuals. I agree with everything. I agree with everything Mark said. What was the next question? <laughs> I've, got, I've got a list here. Yeah, go ahead. What was, the, what was so it? So the next one was: uh, Have you made any? done any bad deals and uh, would you share yes yeah so out of uh, the 30 that I've done I've had two that have lost money both were in locations that are known for having high crime and both got broken into and I'm one of the sellers that discloses so I disclose that and that became a deterrent in addition to that on uh, one of them someone was murdered down the street while it was on the market, uh, which doesn't help sale prices too much. Um, so those, those are the two bad deals that I did. Uh, one of them was a couple thousand dollar loss, the other one was about a $20,000 loss. And one was in Alum Rock and one was in Antioch. Not a whole lot. In the overall scheme of things, that's not much. I had one bad deal 
uh, last year that just took way too long to sell. And the lesson learned there is I tried to skimp on certain things. It was a house that I thought um, it had a you know million dollar view, and I thought the buyer would overlook certain things like uh, um, certain problems with the outdoor decks on it. And so you know, I didn't take care of certain things that I should have. And, uh, you know, the best learning lessons are when you fail and when things don't go right, you never forget those lessons. So, um, yeah, I lost a little bit of money on that. Just one thing real quick, too, is what's just as important as the ones you lose money on is what you learn from the ones that you made money on, but you could have made more money on them. So all 30 of the deals that I've done, I can point to a handful of things that I did wrong. Uh, or that I could have done better to do better on future deals. So uh, you don't evaluate it, whether it's a plus or a minus. Every deal, there's something to learn. So I've done about 45 deals in uh, 123 Bird Avenue in Willow Glen. That was my one loser. Didn't lose too much on it, but um, I got kind of roped in a little bit by the agent that was selling it. Um, I had my own agent, the buyer's agent. Uh, but the listing agent was, you know, very aggressive, wanting us to release contingencies, buy it. We were trying to talk. We were trying. We were trying to talk to the city uh, about getting certain things kind of figured out. And then we just thought the deal was good enough that we're just gonna, you know, we could figure it out. Even if the city doesn't do what they, what we're hoping they're gonna do, we'll figure it out with the neighbor. There was a bunch of complications. But then the listing agent was putting a lot of pressure and we decided to go for it and that was a mistake so um, I think my lesson there is just you know being careful about what you're doing and if you're feeling too pressured and you don't feel like it's the right deal then maybe pass uh, so I've had, I've had that one where I actually lost money uh, a lot of deals I've gotten kind of stuck on so permit process and all that kind of stuff, so uh, where I made a little bit less money than I thought I would, or a lot less money than I thought I would. But um, I think if you buy right, uh, you're going to be okay. So just make sure that when you're buying, uh, that it's definitely a good deal. Okay, and I think I think question one, uh, subset C, paragraph three, was how do you pick a location to invest in? I think, you know, if, well, I guess I'm assuming that's for a fix and flip. Is that a fix and flip question versus buy home? Yes, for fix and flip. So, yeah, I think you want to look in those markets where, um, you, you want to look in the markets where houses are selling fast, which is, seems like pretty much any market these days, right? So that, that, that's not tough to do. Um, you know, really, I think it comes down to, uh, being at a comfortable distance where you think you can manage the project. So, for example, I, the furthest projects I've done were like up to Richmond or in Concord. So I always say, you know, I'll go, I'll drive about an hour. I don't really want to go try to manage a project, for example, in Sacramento. Um, and again, in, in this market right now, you know, all the markets are hot. You, now you got to look at, you know, what price point you can afford and you can feel comfortable with from a from a uh, financial standpoint. So obviously, if your budget's limited, you're probably not looking in Saratoga. Um, and 
I guess again, you're you're. For me, it's really based on relationships. So I've been fortunate where I've gotten relationships with certain people in the East Bay market. Um, that market's really hot. Oakland and Berkeley, those markets are extremely hot right now, just like ev everywhere, I guess. And so that's where I focus my attention because that's where the deals are. If I was finding a ton of deals in the South Bay, I'd be down here. I always tell people I'd much rather do a deal in my backyard. I'm just not finding that many deals. So I, you know, I guess there's not too much technical uh, analysis that you have to do in this market because everything's really selling well in this market right now. It won't always be that way, though, I'm sure. For me, I'd say if you're the less experienced you are, the further you should be willing to go. And you go as far as you need to go to find the deals. It's less about the location and it's more about the deal when you're starting out. As you get more experience and you have more deals that are being sent to you, then you can start to be a little more picky. But uh, in this market especially, when you've got low inventory, you need to go as far as you need to go to get it. When I, when I started, I was going several hours away in East Bay in Contra Costa County. I live in Gilroy. Um, so it's a couple hours, and that was my nights and weekends job while I was still at my day job. Um, and I went as far as I needed to go to find the deals. And it also, you know, lower price points and having a fallback of being able to rent it for positive cash flow wasn't a bad thing either. But I'd say if you're starting out, you go where you need to go, even if that's a couple hours away, assuming your, you know, your current job, if you have another job that you're doing, allows for that. And uh, then over time, you can get more picky. Obviously, you know, my experience with a couple that are in the high crime areas, I now try to stay away from the higher crime areas if possible. Uh, but when I started out, that's, you know, that's, that's where I went. And, you know, I had two that I lost money, but I also made money on a lot of those in those tougher areas. So, again, over time, you can be more picky up front, have a wide span. And as Mark said, if you have experts in those areas that you trust, whether that's agent or someone else that can help you with deals, that makes a difference. The areas that I do the most deals are the ones where I've got the best agents now that are send it, sending deals to me, which is my best source of deals. So that plays a part in it as well. So I, I tend to disagree a little bit about that because, the, you know, I, I kind of want to know the area that I'm in and I want to really know it well as far as schools and what's happening with this and that. Uh, but probably the way, the way to kind of get above and beyond that is to maybe have really good relationships with the realtors that are giving you those deals outside of your comfort area. But I, I tend to have a comfort area and not really go too far out. So I'll, I'll never go to like Sacramento or, uh, you know. And for some reason, I've never really had a deal work out in Morgan Hill, Gilroy. So kind of south of South San Jose, I don't really touch. And usually I go up. I there, I yeah, I know. Oh, uh, really? You, you haven't? Gilroy and Morgan Hill? Never? Okay. Yeah, I don't know why it never happened to me either. <laughs> You know, it's only like 10 minutes away. I wouldn't mind doing it, but it's just never worked out. But anyway, so uh, so usually, you know, Peninsula, I'll go up to, you know, maybe as far as San Mateo. The other side, I'll go up to Pleasanton. Maybe I'll come into like Fremont, but that's about it. And then mostly down in San Jose. So. But what would you say for somebody that's new? For somebody that's new, um, so... You know, I think like stretching out, like you were saying, in the back of my mind, there's like a little bit of a fear that uh, it would discourage 
because of all the effort that they have to put in. If they're really motivated like you were, you know, for the first few deals, you're jumping in your car, you're excited, you're going to drive two hours to grab, you know, the deal and then keep going two hours for the next month or two until the deal is done, but you're so excited that it's your first deal. But for me, uh, you know, it might discourage you a little bit uh, because of that effort that you're putting in and you, and you might kind of start thinking that it's tougher than it actually should be. So for me, I'd, li- I'd rather, if you don't have a lot of money, to partner with somebody uh, and somebody that's, you know, really experienced and maybe you're only going to pick up 10% of the million dollar deal, but I'd rather not have you go to Sacramento and get a $100,000 house, but put $100,000 into this million dollar deal and get 10% or 15% or whatever you can work out of it, uh, and, but, but do the deal here. But just, you know, but I think uh, it, it is a good idea with the realtor if, if you have really good relationships up there. Um, you know, it tends to alleviate a lot of that. Out of state, these guys sometimes do out of state, but for me, I was, you know, I just want to stay Bay Area. So to follow up a bit, and I think this is probably true of all of these guys and other folks like them who are really experienced, they get to a point where they start kind of uh, circling the wagons, and then they say, I'm not leaving this area. But people still bring them deals and they have connections in places further afield. And they may very well, you know, you tap into folks like that and folks like these guys and they may say, yeah, I've got a deal in Contra Coffee. I don't do business there anymore, but you live there. It's great for you. And you may get that sent your way because someone up here might say, yeah, I don't, I still have people bringing me stuff there, but I'm not, I don't do business anymore. Up there, because they don't—they don't need to. But it may be great for you. So, uh, so going back to John, uh, so I don't think anyone—anyone anyone who is motivated enough will drive the two or three hours away. Uh, but what is, if you don't really know much of the geography of the place? Uh, what are the what are the factors that you, you you're looking at to say, okay, besides crime? Um, Diesel market. What else are you looking at that shows that you could possibly sell this house within, you know, the time frame that you want to sell it in? Right. Uh, so that's a good question. So just on your first point, though, on your premise, I don't accept. Which is, if you don't know something about an area, go learn about it. If, if you're motivated, you're going to go to the areas where you can do business, and you're going to learn it. It's uh, too many people that I, I I talk to that I mentor and spend time with. They want to try to do investing in this little box in their backyard, and you just can't survive in this business right now doing that. When when the market turns and there's a ton of inventory, you can do that. But if in this case right now, uh, you've got to go, I strongly believe you've got to go where the deals are or where you can get deals and go learn an area that other people don't want to go to because you're going to have less competition and you have more opportunity for success there. So that's the uh, first thing. As far as the locations, things I look for, if... I had choices and I get over that first hurdle. Uh, obviously, I'm going to be looking for areas that have low days on market. I'm going to be looking at schools is huge. Uh, I think a, a big piece that people miss is sometimes, even though a house is one or two blocks away from another comparable house, if the school district is different, that can make a difference of 100000 or more 
on the sale price and you can either use that to your advantage or you can get really burned by not knowing that information so that's i think a big thing to look at as well the other thing though i would say is i also look at areas where there's not a lot of good comparables and because i have competent agents in those areas it gives me an advantage so i'll give you an example santa cruz you can go to santa cruz there's no subdivisions or very few subdivisions there so you can go street by street and sometimes even within the same street and you're going to have a wide variety of comparables if you don't have the local knowledge and you don't have agents that can help you you're in trouble but if you do have a really good agent in an area like that it can be a huge advantage there's been times when i looked at it and i did my own analysis and i said no way i'm going to buy this house and those ended up being some of the best deals because i listened to my agent they were willing to tie their commission to put their uh, you know what on the line that that was actually going to come through and i'll tell you that with the competent agents most of the time that's actually come through so that's how i would answer that hi I was just wondering, do you guys only focus on residential or have you guys done any commercial deals? Like shopping centers, anything? So, just real brief, my philosophy is, I guess my real estate philosophy is um, to you know, try to take the active income I'm making from my so-called day job and this fix and flip business that I uh, managed to put together because I'm a workaholic. And I try to take the majority of the profits from that and, and try to push that into passive income. And so um, that's gotten me into looking at uh, multifamily properties, um, some student housing. And um, so those, these are buy hold. So it's really hard to do that here. Are you, are you asking about fixing and flipping like commercial properties or are you talking about buy hold strategy? Right. Yeah, no, that's a great strategy. And I, right. So, I mean, that's what we try to do in the apartment deals. Uh, we're looking for deferred maintenance uh, and or poor property management, both areas that we can improve upon to increase uh, uh, revenue and reduce expenses, therefore increase net operating income. And... Uh, and then you, you know, that's how you end up with a, with a great return. So, um, you know, it's really hard to do in this market here because real estate's so pricey, it doesn't really cash flow. People are paying three caps for, you know, all kinds of different properties here in the Bay Area. So, well, yeah, well, so, you know, we look in uh, Phoenix, which has actually become a really hot market more recently, and in Texas, and Texas market is hot. I mean, everywhere is hot, right? You know, a lot of, I mean, like Oklahoma City, you know, a lot of people in California would be like, who wants to live in Oklahoma City? But, you know, the cap rates are really low there, too. I mean, everybody's trying, money is trying to find a place uh, with some, with yield, and it's really hard uh, today. And so, 
Uh, it's a challenge, and again, it goes back to relationships. So, you know, I've taught people how to invest in multifamily, and you know, how do you find an apartment deal? You know, it's really having a relationship with brokers. That's how people do it. There's only two ways, really, that most people do it. Um, and that's to send out direct mail, which I don't hear a lot of people doing. And it's, you know, having relationships with brokers. And it goes right back to, it's the same principles as single family. You want to get to the top of the list for that broker. When you first meet them, they're going to give you crappy deals. And, you know, you want to politely tell them, thank you for the opportunity. But, uh, and then remind them that, you know, this is my criteria and this is why this doesn't work for me. And again, you have to be persistent. You have to be consistent to, to, Keep following up with them, and you know, eventually, uh, hopefully, you do deals. If you're doing it out of state, you want to go meet the people that you're working with. You don't want to just talk to them over the phone because that solidifies, you know, the relationship and the rapport with them. It really helps. Um, but I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. So, yeah, so, you know, it depends on what your budget is. You know, a lot of, probably the simplest way to get into um, commercial real estate, uh, particularly if it's not in the area, is to participate in a syndication, which means you're going to be a passive investor. Now, some people don't want to do that because you don't actually own, uh, you know, you're a passive investor, so you're giving up money to a management team to put the deal together do the due diligence, close, and bring in the financing, then close, and then manage it ongoing. Uh, but a lot of times that's the, the best way to get into commercial deals. Um, that 172 units that Jeff talked about that I'm involved in in Texas, you know, we bought it at the right price, and in two years we're looking to sell it for double the uh, equity. Uh, that we started with in that property. So in two short years, so that was just buying a property in the right location at the right price. And, but that was a syndication, you know, and uh, so you lose a little bit of um, control over that because you're you're counting on an operator to both perform and to make a good decision when to exit out of it. So you, you give up some control, but you remain passive. So if you have a day job and less time resources, you know, that can make a lot of sense. But you should still really understand the, the you know. Well, one of the things that I was thinking about was performing like a club, you know, a member who would go into it, um, I guess Yeah, the only thing I think you want to make uh, be careful about there is the more partners you have in something like that, the more opportunity there is for disagreements and, you know, somebody needs to get out, people want to stay in. So I guess the key there is know who you're investing with and make sure that all your goals are very well aligned. Um, in the syndication arrangement where you have operators that are putting a deal together and on, you know, you're putting your faith in them that they're going to, again, be competent in um, getting you in the right deal and managing it properly so that it's a, it's a profitable, it's a successful uh, venture. Um, so you just, if you're going to do something like that, you just need to do your due diligence on the people that, you're, that are going to be controlling the deal uh, that you're putting your money into.
So, I'll be a little bit of a devil's advocate, but basically, uh, for me, so I've only done, um, you know, single family homes, and what I do is I take those profits and put them into like a duplex, threeplex, fourplex. Uh, so I have a, you know, threeplexes and fourplexes. So I don't do any commercial, and basically there's a little bit of a, a beauty to it, and you'll see that basically I'm usually very consistent. I don't really, you know, John doesn't like to have a box, but I like to have my box. You know, I have I have a certain deals I like to have a box. Yeah. If I've done zero deals, I can't afford to have a box. <laughs> yeah, that's good. But um, you know, I I have a certain thing that I do, and I just do that, and I don't really venture out too much, because what I what I do is giving me you know really good money, and I'm happy with it, and I don't really want to do anything else. And. Uh, uh, you know, for all of you guys out there, you know, find what that thing is and get really good at it. And don't, you know, venture off into a hundred different things. Figure out what that thing is and keep doing it and get, you know, be the best at it kind of a thing. You don't, don't chase shiny objects. Focus. Especially your whole It's funny that you mentioned that you lost money on the uh, the deal in Villaguin. I was looking at this property uh, in Villaguin the other day, and um, I'm really struggling over this one because uh, all the comps are in very high price range. But this one is on a really like on the on the corner of really two really busy streets. So and the price has been reduced recently too um, in a very large amount. So I'm still thinking whether I should you know pick up this deal. So would it be possible for you to take a look at it for me afterwards, after the meeting? <laughs> yeah, I was really struggling because if, if they lower any more, I think it could, I could make some money out of it. But anyway, uh, so my question is, what would be a tougher business to break into? Is it wholesale or between wholesale and, uh, and flip, flipping? And what do you enjoy? I think, you know, a lot of people getting into this business, uh, they do the wholesaling aspect first because you know it doesn't require money, uh, so to speak. You know you can go negotiate with any seller, get a a contract signed, and then you know attempt to wholesale it. Um, the challenge with wholesaling, so so all these gurus make it sound like it's you know the way to go and it's easy money and all that. But the problem is is that. If you think about it, if I'm looking at a deal, um, whatever it is, 75 to 80% of um, our less construction, if you're a wholesaler, you're, you're, you're needing to find a deal below that so that you can make your assignment fee or finder's fee. And so that just becomes even more of a challenge, you know, in this type of market. So, you know, I guess at the end of the day, it really depends on your resources. Uh, if you have financial resources um, and you know a team of people or mentors that can help you personally, I would. This is just me personally. I'm sure everybody has a different view of it. Um, I would rather do the fix and flip. There's just you know more money in it, particularly in this hot market. Yeah, I think it comes down to find the deal 
if you find a good deal, you're going to have multiple options because if you're trying to wholesale it, there's going to be plenty of buyers. If you want to rehab it, you're going to be able to find partners. It's more about finding a good deal than it is. Uh, I keep every deal as an open. You know, I'm I'm open to selling it the day after I close on buying it. I'm open to selling it before I close on it, and I'm open to selling it any time between when I close on the buy to when I close on the sale. Um, so I think you leave your options open and then uh, just make sure that you're finding good deals and you'll find a way to profit from it. You get less greedy when you have 11 deals going. <laughs> yeah, I think between the two, it's, it's basically what John said. You, you know, the hard part is just finding the deal and finding the seller and then deciding what to do with it, wholesaling it or you know, it just depends on the money involved. Um, but if you don't have any money and you, you know, you have this house, obviously your only choice is to wholesale it. Um, what's nice about wholesaling is you can make an offer on a $50 million house and if you sell it for $50,000,000, then you made $10,000. That's your average house in Palo Alto, right? <laughs> I have a, a question about the wholesaling because uh, I had heard uh, several months back that um, you can't say uh, or assign on a contract anymore. Is that the case? And if so, then how do you wholesale? And if it's not the case, then I, that answers the question. I don't know. I'm a real estate broker, but maybe I missed that one. So I... I didn't hear that. So, yeah, they changed the... I'm trying to think back now. I think the new rule came in just June of this year. There was a, you know, the new contract, some verbiage in there about and or signs. I think there's a box that you actually have to check now. Okay, so it's still legal. It's still legal. Okay. Um, what... You need to understand also is there's always been a difficulty with wholesalers saying and or assigns, but there's lots of ways to take care of that later. So basically you go into a seller and you say here's the contract and or assigns. The seller thinks okay, uh, you know, and or assigns, who's the and or assigns? Oh, well I have a bunch of partners that I do this with, I've done a lot of deals, I have a lot of partners that I do this with. I'm not sure whose name that this deal is going to go through. Either I'm going to take it on or one of my partners is going to take it on and that's why and or assigns. So then the seller signs. Now you have a contract that says and or assigns. Um, basically when you get the buyer that's going to actually take over that contract, if they're going to have a loan that they're going to buy the property with, if you were able to have the seller be okay with a loan and you're going to hand over that contract that's able to get a loan on it, the buyer is going to want to send it to their lender. Uh, the lender is not going to like the and or assigns or understanding that it was assigned. So what happens is after you figure out who the buyer is, you let that buyer know that you're going to be able to go back to the seller, keep all the same terms and change the contract into his name for his lender. There's always a way around it. There's always a way around it. So basically, yeah. So basically going into the seller 
you know, and or signs so the seller knows and understands that maybe a different name is going to be the buyer. Most sellers could care less as long as you just give them the same terms and the same price that they agreed to. And then basically you're going to go in and have uh, a new contract with the new buyer and then uh, go from there. Uh, you know, some of that just depends on the sophistication of the uh, wholesaler. So, like, so I have a wholesale contract, even though I don't consider myself a wholesaler. I haven't wholesaled a deal in a while, uh, so it's kind of a formal uh, way of doing it. But uh, I work with a wholesaler up in the East Bay, and uh, he does pretty much what Pierre just said. You know, he gets it in contract actually in his own name, and then at some point in the process, once I've committed to it, he just does an addendum and you know slaps my name on it and you know collects a portion of the assignment fee up front it's a little bit less formal way of doing it yeah it, and if you have a, a seller that gets concerned with that you can always do something like make the terms that you're going to release contingencies earlier or you'll put a bigger deposit or the whole, the new wholesale buyer that you find is going to is going to put down a bigger deposit there's always things that you can do to entice if necessary but 90% of the time it's not necessary. Other way around it too is uh, some people put LLCs and then they make the new buyer, the real buyer, the, um, you know, they move the LLC to them, or a trust and they move that trust into that person's name. So basically everything stays the same on the contract but it's just the different person that's leading that, in, that corporation or entity. I think the only problem with that, though, doesn't it take like three or four months to do an LLC in California? Doesn't it take a long time? Change the name, it doesn't take long. Okay. So, uh, the first question I have is, um, do you have any insurance or umbrella or kind of thing to protect your deal? Another thing is, you have so many deals, um, so how do you make sure IRS doesn't look at you? So I didn't hear the second question. IRS. So IRS. So what about the IRS? So you have some. So since you have so many deals, probably IRS. Oh yeah, this is a very. Uh, well, will they get attention? And then how do you make sure you don't get attention from IRS? Well, they they just get lots of money as well. <laughs> But, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm spacing out. What was the first question? <laughs> what kind of protection? Oh, yeah, you have umbrella coverage. Yeah, so, coverage. no, I mean, I, I just get vacant policy insurance. So, you, you know, the insurance company, you know, insurance companies, if something happens, they always want to figure out a way not to pay you, right? So you need to make sure that any policy that you're getting is, um, that they are aware of the fact that this is a remodel project, that it's a vacant house and a remodel. Um, I mean, I'd be happy to share with you the one company that I typically use that's really economical. Uh, what you'll, what you have to know when you're calculating in your, um, uh, you know, your costs, is that an, a vacant policy is definitely far more expensive than your normal homeowner policy as a primary resident. No, I mean, my insurance on a typical maybe $500,000, $600,000 house is maybe, for a six-month policy, is in the range of $1,100, $1,200 maybe. Okay, then you need to share that name. Who is it? 
Yeah, they're kind of a pain to work with, but it's a company called CSC. C, Charlie, Sam, Edward. I'd be happy to share. Actually, I have a phenomenal um, insurance agent. I just think she's like the very best insurance agent ever. Super, super helpful. Understands, you know, the business I'm in. And I just found her actually recently, and I'm so happy to refer to anybody just because when you find somebody that gives you phenomenal service and is super knowledgeable, uh, she helped me out actually on a policy. I got hit by a car on my bike, and you know she doesn't have any of my personal policies yet, and she totally figured out a way to get the uh, the uh, other person's insurance not to um, screw me. I usually pay about twenty five hundred to three thousand every six months, so I'd love to. <laughs> yeah, but you're doing deals on the peninsula, right? I'm doing deals in Oakland, so the properties are worth a lot less. This is for a house, you know, where I'm insuring it for maybe five hundred, six hundred thousand, somewhere in that range. Yeah, don't ask me because I'm paying way more than that. Maybe it's because my coverage is higher because I do the million dollar liability, um, and I also take additional insurance on all the construction and most of my projects probably have larger construction budgets than normal but I'm not paying anywhere close to that so I'd love to check out the contact that you said. I do both so I have umbrella coverage uh, personally and I do the house by house I, I have several layers because like Mark said if there's any way that they can find a way not to pay then they will if you have enough projects, they will do an umbrella coverage over over your overall business as well. You're paying that much per house. I'm paying more. I'm paying probably closer to six or seven on larger houses, uh, six or seven thousand on larger houses, and some up to nine or ten thousand, depending on the price point and how big the construction budget is on the project. Yeah, he does huge deals. Mine are like about twenty five hundred. To three thousand for the six months. Hi. So, um, when you guys hire contractors to do the work, do you generally hire subcontractors, general contractors? And if you go with general contractors, what kind of a contract do you use with them? Is it cost plus? Is it an overall bid for the whole project with a set of blueprints, or how do you like to do it? So my deals, you know, don't get too complicated. So I usually make most of my money by buying them right. Um, as much as I would like to think that it's the way I remodel them and the way I do this and the, you know, the curtains that I chose and you know everything like that. But it's, it, you know, if I think back, a lot of it is just you know where I bought them, and then whatever I did to them, you know, maybe helped a little bit, but you know, didn't push me over the top too much. And so I don't really do that much. So I've never really, you know, gone in and built a brand new house or anything. So um, a lot of it is just remodeling kitchens, bathrooms, prettying up the house, maybe a new roof, and then turning it around. And so I usually just use uh, the contractors. So I think the, probably the hardest uh, part of this business or the biggest challenge is finding the deals but close behind that is finding good contractors and even when you find a good one you know it, you know if they're still doing a good job for you and prices haven't creeped up two three four houses later then 
you know, keep them and reward them well. Uh, finding good contractors is, is a huge challenge, I think, for most in this business. And um, so, yeah, finding good ones, I'm, I'm just trying to think how I've found good ones in the past. Uh, in almost all cases, it's been referrals, right? And again, you know, people in this business, some people, you know, they want to hold that close to their vest and they don't want to share a good contractor with you. Others um, are more uh, generous. Um, so I've, I've found contractors through generally uh, referrals and um, I do basically a, a contract where they're covering all labor and material uh, rather than subcontracting it out. I mean, the one thing I would say not to do is definitely don't do time and material because it always takes them twice as long as what they think it's going to take. So, um, But I know guys that uh, probably do it a little bit more cost effectively maybe than I by you know really getting uh, hands-on and hiring the subcontractors. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm just lazy, but that's a lot of work. I'd rather find a really good, competent uh, GC and just you know count on him to, to, to get the job done you know, economically. Up till now, I've used general contractors, and what I, li I like to provide incentives similar to what I talked about before with the agents, which is structured in a way where uh, we keep the upfront cost down, they get a percentage of whatever it sells for over some price, so then they're incented to do higher quality work, um, trying to align on the objectives, and then also on timeline. So they give me a timeline and I'll have a per day bonus that they get if they end earlier than that timeline and they have a penalty if they end later than that timeline. And I will generally, if they give me a timeline, I will add time on there because I want them to have a chance to actually make it. I think that's in everyone's best interest and if they don't, it's covering my holding costs. I don't get too frustrated by it unless it's a significant delay. Um, so for me, it's all about creating the right incentive and they also then have the opportunity to make more than they would if they bid it at a normal cost because they have that upside. Uh, the reason I said that that's what I used to do is now because I have so many projects going and I've overloaded my contractor, I'm going to probably have to start playing a little bit more project manager on some jobs um, and, and doing some subcontracting and then bringing in a general contractor to knock out a kitchen or bathroom or something, something more like that. But other trades that I can do on my own, roofs, windows, paint, those types of things, uh, maybe something that I, I just project manage on my own. Right, two more questions, then we're going to wrap up. I'm hoping I'm asking the right question because I'm new to this, but um, is there an average price per square foot for that cost that you're looking at, or um, is every deal very different? depending on what goes into it. So you're, you're asking about construction costs? Remodel. Yeah. I don't know. When I got in the business, like these guys would say, you know, starting at 25 or $30 a square foot, you know, would get you basically a kitchen, two bathrooms, some flooring, paint inside, outside. And then, you know, you'd add certain things in for roof and new windows and landscaping, et cetera, new furnace. Um, so I think really 
uh, you know, that might work to at least take a, a initial stab at something, but really it comes with experience that you learn, you know, what the costs are, and also having that relationship with the contractor that you can um, bring them out to a deal. But and one of the things I, I always want to be careful about is I, I never want to bring a contractor to a job until I get it in contract because it's so challenging today to get you know houses in contract that you don't want to be running around and exercising your contractor you know and say oh thanks for you know looking at that but I didn't get it because if you do that two or three times they're not going to be your friend anymore um, but uh, yeah I mean I don't know. I, I just look at them now and kind of uh, ballpark it, and then you know I'll follow up with my contractor to nail down the price a little bit better. But uh, I don't know. What do you use? Like forty-five dollars, fifty dollars a square foot? It depends on you know how nice the house is. Like if it's in Los Gatos versus you know on Ninety-eighth Street in Oakland. <laughs> yeah, the answer is it really does vary. I know some other investors that use 35 to 40 dollars a square foot as just a rough filter number um, I don't personally use that but that's a number that I've heard that other other people use and that's for cosmetic fix and flip typically I mean once you get into more complex things like foundation or you know adding stuff it, you know then the prices go up accordingly yeah I've never really had it you know price per square foot on a remodel so what I do is uh, just usually when I go through a house estimating, kitchen is usually about 10, it, bathrooms are usually about 5, um, floors, if it's you know above 1,500 square feet, it's about 10,000, if it's under, about 5, roofs, I'll do about 12 to 15, and, and usually, yeah, um, so some of it, like the roof is an overestimate a little bit. Um, windows are about 500 a window, and um, what else can you have in a house? So, and usually when I add up all that, I'll add another 10% on top, and that's close enough. And usually, uh, and usually that's close enough because on all my deals, it tends to be right around there. And single-family homes, you know, for a nice remodel, usually around. 60,000, 70,000, and for um, you know condos tends to be around maybe 40. And it kind of always seems to fall right around there because I kind of do the same things for all the houses. I just add to that, you know, the most important thing you can do is figure out the after repair value. So you can be 10% off on the construction budget. Let me give you an example. So maybe you have a $500,000 house and you have a $100,000 construction budget and you're looking to make a $50,000 profit. So if you're 10% off on the after repair value, that could be pretty much all your profit, right? But if you're 10% off on your construction budget, you know, instead of 100,000, it's 110,000. That's not catastrophic if you bought the property correct with enough margin in it, particularly in this market. So I can't overemphasize for people that are new to this that after repair value is absolutely critical to your success, which is why you want to have relationships with the right people, whether it's a wholesaler that you trust because you've seen that they're conservative or uh, an agent or broker that, you know, will pinpoint and are uh, conservatively. And uh, you only figure that out over time and taking a close look at, you know, how they're doing it. 
but uh, that's really what's going to save you one way or the other, getting that, uh, that one number correct. Because after that, it's just simple math. Figure out if it's a good deal or not. Okay, last question. Hi. Um, my question for the panel is, um, you know, we've had some really good years in the last five years. Hi, Mark. Um, Hi. Since 2010 up to 2015, we had some really good run for the last five years. Obviously, the market would not keep going up forever. So, I'm, you know, my question to the panel is, where do you see the market going in the next two to three years? And what adjustment are you making in your business to anticipate that inevitable adjustment in the market? And you're doing all your deals in San Francisco, which is completely insane. So, um, yeah, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. You know, you talk to most realtors and they always think it's going to, you know, it, it's slowing down, but it's, you know, it's going to keep going up five or six percent a year. And we all know that, you know, there's cycles and, you know, it doesn't ever just kind of flatten out, right, and just take a pause. It, it goes up until it doesn't go up anymore and then it typically comes down. And quite frankly, uh, I think you heard from my bio, I haven't, I haven't been in a down cycle, so I'm probably the wrong person to ask in this room. Um, but... I come from high tech and I saw the down cycle, the dot-com bust, and so I'm very, very, very um, aware of, or I think about all the time, you know, what cycles look like and, and what can happen. And I've heard all the horror stories from people that have been doing this a lot longer than me. So I think you reduce your risk by, you know, smaller projects that are, you know, four months, six months, seven months. I mean, you start going much longer than that. You start getting into the year, the 18-month uh, type projects, and I think the risk just goes up because it's harder to predict what the market's going to be doing then. Um, you know, here in the Bay Area, the economy is so strong, the business climate is so strong that, you know, nobody seems to think that prices are ever going to go down anytime soon. But I don't know, I would be a little bit nervous about that, which is why I've uh, avoided maybe really trying to get aggressive to doing a ground-up build, because that does take a lot longer, and um, so there's more risk involved in that. But, you know, those guys that have done it, I guess they're more comfortable with it. Um, I don't know, I, I guess if you talk to enough realtors, the, the general consensus is you know, we're probably pretty good till uh, maybe mid-2016 or so, and then, you know, the market's probably in for a slight, at least a slight correction, whatever the heck that means. Yeah, for me, I normally will not try to predict past 12 months because I think that's just throwing darts. There's way too many things that can happen with the economy, with the uh, global events, terrorist events, all those things, which it, you can't predict that even tomorrow, let alone trying to predict that out a year. Um, so for me, I think the next six months, there's uh, an imbalance where we're still going to have more buyers and sellers. Inventory is still going to be lower than normal. And so I think we're pretty safe for that time period. Beyond six months, uh, you know, if you asked me six months ago, I would have said 12 months is fine. Now I'd say six months is fine. Beyond that, I'm a little more cautious. I, I have two uh, ground-up construction projects. I ended up selling off one of them because of that concern uh, to, to hedge in the portfolio a little bit and focus more on some of the shorter term ones. So 
for me, I'm comfortable the next six months, I think, going into an election year, plus all the other uh, events that are a risk out there, in addition to interest rates and seeing what the economy does, um, I get a little bit more, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm pessimistic, but I'd say I'm, I'm being a little more prudent on, on before picking up projects that are that large. And if I do have projects that are longer than that, they better have a really big margin, which the one that I am pursuing right now, the margin's big enough that I'm not concerned about that. Just one other thing I'd add to that. I mean, going kind of back to my, at least my little philosophy is that I don't want to, you know, you know, go through this uh, flipping business for, you know, three, four years thinking I'm making great money and then have the economy cycle back down and end up with nothing. I mean, you hear about developers that, you know, at the height of the, uh, the boom, they're, they have net worths of $10 million or more and then they lose everything when it cycles back around. So, my philosophy, as I said earlier, has always been to try to take the majority of my profits from this business and put it into cash flowing, buying right and cash flowing real estate that will, you know, even if there's less cash flow, it's uh, in a downturn, it's still, you, you still have the means to finance your debt, service your debt, and uh, I'd rather do less deals and, and, and be building that nest egg on the other side. Um, so, anyway, that's just my philosophy. I have a similar <clears throat> similar uh, policy as well. So, if anybody heard me talk uh, when I was up as a speaker, um, that's basically what I do is I kind of harness all, you know, whatever money I'm making on real estate, on the flips, on everything else, and I throw it into fourplexes. I pay off a fourplex, and I start on the next one. And then I keep, um, you know, that one paid off fourplex will help me pay the second, including all the money I'm making. And then after I paid off that second, I'll get a third. Now I have two fourplexes that are paying off the third, plus all the money I'm making with everything else. And then I get a fourth, and then I get a fifth, and then I get a sixth. So that's my retirement. Eventually, you know, I'll have whatever, seven, eight buildings, ten buildings that are making me seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year, um, and then I'm gonna retire with the property with the properties. All right. Let's just wrap up now. I'd say uh, this is an awesome session. We'll get to thanking everybody. Okay, oh yeah, thank everybody. <laughs> thank uh, thanks Mark. Yeah, John, I said a few themes that came out reoccurring that people should bear in mind. Uh, this is a relationship business. Heard that again and again and again, whether you're looking for deals, you're looking to sell, you're looking to buy, you're looking for an agent. It's about relationships and follow through is also huge. I know Mark is saying over and over again, and it'll happen here. Uh, you, you, people go, oh, this is great. I'm so excited. And you'll meet someone, you'll get their card, and that's going to be the end of it. There are going to be people who do that. Try, try to resist that. Follow through. And uh, get out of your comfort zone because success uh, always lies beyond the comfort zone. If you want to succeed in this business, you're probably going to have to do some things that you are not comfortable with. As simple as that. But the cool thing about that is you do something that you're not comfortable with and then suddenly that's another thing you're comfortable with. And then you'll look back and wonder why that was such a big deal. It's easier said than done, but you've got to remind yourself of that all the time. And uh, it's about your network. 